Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And welcome to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We are glad you're here. Your stool is waiting for you. And Jim, quite a week in so many ways. As those of you who were with us yesterday know, we had an entire show taped. It was in the process of being edited, and then we found out about the passing of Queen Elizabeth, and uh, obviously it was the right decision to make to talk about such an extraordinary legacy, and as time goes on here, I think it's going to be more than a week of uh, events uh, leading up to her funeral and eventual interment, so uh, more things are going to be discussed in connection with this, including our crazy martini today, by the way, but uh, you know, the world doesn't stop, even due to major events like this, so here we go with uh, our three martinis today, starting with our good martini, and there's... Well, some bitter aftertaste here, but at least we're moving in the right direction in the Pennsylvania Senate race. Jim, we talked uh, earlier in the week about how the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the largest paper near the hometown of John Fetterman, was saying, you know, your decision not to show up for these debates is making it a real question as to whether or not you are physically fit for service. He's, we know he's not ideologically fit for service, but the Post-Gazette can't exactly say that. So they were kind of pushing him to get committed to a debate, and he has. Uh, this is the Free Beacon. After mounting pressure from the press, Democratic Pennsylvania Senate hopeful John Fetterman says he will debate his Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz, after all. Politico reported on Wednesday that uh, while Fetterman has skipped debates so far this summer to work on his auditory processing and speech after suffering a massive stroke, he is going to apparently agree to a debate, although that hasn't specifically been said when yet. Uh, Jim, they're saying mid to late October, sometime in the middle to end of October, on a major television station in the state. That's obviously to Fetterman's advantage to make it as late as possible, given early voting and, of course, giving him the most time to potentially recover here. But if Oz is going to make any hay, that might be the time to do it. So what do you make of Fetterman's agreement, albeit conditional here? Look, either John Fetterman is well enough to perform his duties in the Senate or he isn't. And if he you know, is just fine or, or well enough for uh, advancing on schedule on the road to recovery, the easiest way to dispel the fears and concerns that he's not is to get him out there and to interact with voters and be on camera and to let people to see him as much as possible. That is not what his campaign has done. We've seen little short snippets on social media. Uh, he has done a few interviews. He says he prefers to use um, the, the, the idea of the, the words at the bottom of the screen to make sure he's uh, hearing and understanding the question correctly. It's up to the people of the state of Pennsylvania to decide whether they have, whether that's a thing like, ah, you know, I just, I don't think this guy's going to be able to do the job. Um, but I think they have further reason to be annoyed by the idea that they're not getting the straight story and that they are being misled. I would remind you, uh, I can't begrudge anyone around Fetterman wanting to put the, the best spin on things or hoping for the best, but they, he had the stroke. His wife, Giselle, said he'd had a little hiccup. And then later on, they said this was a life-threatening stroke. So, no, it wasn't that. And the fact that he spent the better part of three months away from really any public events or cameras, uh, and now obviously he's not quite 100%. And, you know, if it's moving slowly or something like that, fine. You know, uh, you don't need to be enormously physically active as a senator. 
it is much more the ability to hear, the ability to speak, and the ability to understand. And it would seem a debate would be a good way to demonstrate that. It would be a good way to say, yes, I can think on my feet. I'm not easily confused. I'm not using one word when I mean another. You know, that all of this is within rel- you know, relatively normal parameters. I think the people of Pennsylvania are, are pretty darn sympathetic and understanding about this. The fact that they haven't shown so much so far is an indicator that actually maybe this is much worse than it is. And all of this is happening in the context of a 2020 presidential campaign in which Joe Biden did not interact with people very much and did effectively, you know, what Republicans started, you know, sneeringly calling the basement campaign, that he did it all through Zoom, which was a way many people suspected of uh, not giving him the typical presidential candidate schedule, not having him on the road all the time, sleeping in, you know, three different uh, time zones and three different days. And we've seen this reflected in the presidency. So if, if you know, look, it's only one state, but if Fetterman, you know, finds the normal travel schedule of running for Senate really that difficult, then this is not, you know, that this is a sign that Democrats probably would be better off uh, replacing him with a different candidate. And I, you know, there are persistent rumors. I have no idea if this is, this is true or not. And mostly from Republicans who theorize if Fetterman wins the election, after the election, at some point, he will realize that he cannot do the duties and allow the Democratic governor to name his replacement. Yeah, I think that's exactly what the plan is. And I don't know what the early voting situation is in, in Pennsylvania. I know they had a robust mail-in balloting uh, system in 2020 as a result of the pandemic and so forth. And the question becomes, Jim, how many people have already voted by the time this debate happens? If it happens, especially in late October, uh, you know, there might be some buyer's remorse there because I'm guessing that the Democrats are going to push hard for people to vote early before this debate happens. Right. Yeah. You know, I I guess the only advantage and we kind of alluded to this uh, earlier in the week, this idea that, look, if the expectations are low enough that if Fetterman goes out there and does not drool on himself, people think, okay, he's not doing so bad. Uh, but the, you don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know if Oz is going to hit him with some question and Fetterman will just be there stammering or looking confused or, or something could always go really bad. So obviously you'd like to have this decision. You know, like if you're if you're a Pennsylvania voter, you got any doubts about this? Don't vote early. Don't you know, watch Fetterman with your own eyes and draw your own conclusions. Don't just take it on faith that he's you know in the state that you think he should be in. Um, but I, I look, the, the effort here is pretty transparent. So by this sense, it's bad. The good news is that, you know, at least he is recognized and his campaign is recognized. They can't get away with not having a debate between now and Election Day. Yeah. And don't vote against John Fetterman just because he uh, might not be mentally and physically up to the job. Also vote against him because he is a lunatic on a number of issues, including banning fracking and uh, letting a lot of people out of jail, having no uh, full life sentences for anybody, uh, regardless of what you've done. Uh, Seems to be a democratic trend here, Jim, and uh, letting people out when they shouldn't be out doesn't seem to be having the greatest results. So uh, keep that in mind, uh, people in Pennsylvania. And I just also want to throw out this point that, like, you know, we all have almost every human being sooner or later has some health issues and you can either deal with it or you can be in denial of it. I think, you know, the, the probably the clearest and most glaring example of unless you want to go back to Woodrow Wilson and remember all all evil in this world can be traced back to Woodrow Wilson. Definitely. Um, but the you know that, that uh, Paul Songus was at one point, you know, running neck and neck with Bill Clinton He'd had cancer. He said he was cancer free. 
Uh, he was not cancer-free, and in fact, there were some indications that he was overstating the uh, risk to of a recurrence. Uh, in fact, sadly, it did come back, and he died in 1996, which means if he had been elected president in 1992, he would not have served out a full term. A full term. He probably would have had to resign much sooner than that. Songus was not honest with the public, and I wonder how much he was honest with himself about the risk of his cancer returning. And I think that's what we're supposed to avoid here. You're supposed to be honest, and you're supposed to let people draw their own conclusions based on known facts, and that does not appear what's happened here. If we, the public, keep rewarding bad behavior, we're going to get more of it. Yeah, and the press, for the most part, especially national press, letting them get away with it. Kudos again to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, like we said earlier in the week, for actually calling it out. All right, on to our bad martini now. And speaking of people whose fitness for office is questionable, uh, let's talk about President Biden and energy. Because, Jim, what we've heard ever since gas prices started skyrocketing was we are doing everything we can, everything. And the only thing everything amounted to was selling huge swaths of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, including to places like China, in order to uh, bring the price down. Um, that's partially responsible. The other big part is that people saw gas prices, said, I can't afford that. So they just didn't take trips and, and, and cut back on travel in other ways. So demand has plummeted. Uh, we also pointed out that uh, the selling of energy from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is going to stop at the end of October. So prices are going to be about as low as they're going to be uh, around Election Day. And then they're supposed to be back up to around $5 by Christmas. So just be aware of what, what Biden is doing there. But as far as doing everything we can, the Wall Street Journal earlier this week with a great uh, takedown of that based on the facts. Uh, Wall Street Journal says the Biden administration has leased fewer acres for oil and gas drilling offshore and on federal land than any other administration in its early stages dating back to the end of World War II. President Biden's Interior Department leased 126,228 acres for drilling through August 20th his first 19 months in office. No other president since Richard Nixon in 69 and 70 leased out fewer than 4.4 million acres at this stage in his first term. Harry Truman was the last president to lease out fewer acres back in 45 and 46 when offshore drilling was just beginning and the federal government didn't yet control the deep water leases that made up the largest part of the federal oil and gas program in modern times. So, Jim, once again, assurances made to us from President Biden and Ron Klain and all sorts of other people that they're doing everything possible to alleviate gas prices, that their energy policies help to drive up. And uh, now we're finding out that they're not doing much of anything at all. In fact, they're stopping energy production. Now, Greg, I'm going to level with li listeners right here. This is one of the topics we had talked about uh, before the Queen passed away and we felt the need to retape the episode. So everything you're about to hear, listeners, I've said before, except I think I said it better before. So if by the time I'm finished, you're like, eh, that didn't seem all that persuasive. Just, just take my word for it. Yesterday's version was a lot better. But here goes. Now that I've lowered expectations. So hearing Biden say things like we're doing everything possible to, to improve energy production and stuff like that, and then seeing reporting in the Wall Street Journal that blatantly, con you know, what an unbelievable contradiction, how utterly false that, that uh, pledge is. I, I wish, there, there are a lot of reasons why I wish Joe Biden was not president. There are a lot of reasons why it's not good to have an elderly president. Um, I wonder if Joe Biden is even aware of the consequences of his decisions. You'd like to think that he is. He's obviously knows early on when his first 
Uh, executive orders was about uh, what kind of leasing and drilling would be permitted on offshore and uh, and on federal lands. But I, I, we don't. The odds of Joe Biden really getting confronted with this are not very likely. Yes, he takes questions. He does it going to and from the helicopter, and he, you know, very rarely goes into great detail. And as you know, listeners to this podcast know, Joe Biden does not do a lot of sit-down interviews because when he does, he usually gets kind of prickly when he gets called out for uh, a promise that was not kept or a, a some guarantee or assurance that turned out to be false. Uh, George Stephanopoulos talking to him after the disaster, uh, as the disaster in Afghanistan is unfolding. And we all remember Biden getting prickly and saying, oh, that was four or five days ago, man. And then, of course, uh, earlier this year, Lester Holt of NBC News uh, points out to him that he had pledged that inflation would be temporary. And obviously it continued for many, many months. And Biden says, well, you're being a bit of a wise guy with me. And actually, no, like, you're no, Mr. President, he's quoting your words back to you. You told the American people a problem would be temporary, and it was not temporary. It was continuing and continuing and continuing. Um, Biden doesn't handle these very well, and his staff knows this, which is why he doesn't do a lot of sit-down interviews. And it's bad enough to have a president who says things that are false. I think what is even more infuriating is that we can't be 100% sure if the president knows that he's lying or whether he's just kind of in this fog. Um, a good question would be, has his staff told him that uh, so much less land, so many fewer acres are available for development of oil resources? Uh, and if so, can he justify it? Or is that just kind of, a, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, is, is he how aware is he of his own policies and their consequences? And that is not just a bad martini, uh, Greg. That's just an utterly from the top of our heads to the bottom of our soles of our feet, infuriating. Absolutely. Absolutely. As Jazz Shot Hot Air points out, Donald Trump wasn't setting any records for the amount of leases, but he still got to 4.4 million. Biden's running 97% behind that. But I mean, on, on the other hand, you've got his administration with Jenny Granholm and others out there saying, full steam ahead, renewable energies, we're putting fossil fuels behind us. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said the exact same thing yesterday. Um, they're, they're living in fantasy land about what can and can't be accomplished with this energy agenda and the impact it's going to have on our pocketbooks. But they don't care. They're just plowing full steam ahead. All right. On to our crazy martini now. And for the vast majority of responses to the news of the Queen's death on Thursday, um, the responses and uh, social media posts were very, very positive. Most people had uh, only positive things to say. But whenever we get into these situations, uh, you always got some who just can't stand to not have attention on them, even if they're hating on somebody who just died. Now, we're not exactly the kindest people to genocidal dictators and communists and people like Hugo Chavez, the Kim family in North Korea. So, uh, But Queen Elizabeth II is very, very different from people like that. Uh, but apparently the winner of the uh, horrible uh, takes department is Carnegie Mellon University professor Uju Anya, uh, who drew criticism not only from her own university, but also Twitter itself after wishing Queen Elizabeth excruciating pain hours before she actually died. So, of course, we got that news on Thursday morning that the doctors were concerned. She was under medical evaluation. The family was headed up to Balmoral. And so she tweets out, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. So 
Jim, not only is it incredibly cruel and just tasteless, she doesn't even understand the legacy of Queen Elizabeth. Nobody oversaw the orderly reduction in size of the British Empire more than Queen Elizabeth. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So this happens almost any time someone famous dies, particularly a figure associated with the right. I think what's interesting is that Queen Elizabeth, you know, I don't think people necessarily think of her as a political conservative, uh, maybe an institutional conservative, and certainly a symbol of tradition and decorum and uh, perhaps a whole bunch of things that a lot of folks on the left have no use for anymore, if they ever had any use for it. Um, back when Rush Limbaugh died, I tried to really kind of chew over this concept of why we are told not to speak ill of the dead. Plenty of people die and, uh, you know, we don't necessarily agree with them. And we, we had real vehement disagree, you know, uh, maybe, maybe we really couldn't stand them. Maybe we really thought they were SOBs. But it's generally considered, a, you know, bad karma, bad idea um, to speak ill now, we don't necessarily extend this to the likes of Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, bin Laden, Baghdadi, Soleimani, uh, you know, Ceausescu, you know, some when some terrible dictator or terrorist dies. Yeah, not, you know, I certainly am not going to give you any grief for dancing a jig upon their grave, but generally about someone who, who you know, was not beyond the pale evil, um, then this is, you know, a, a wildly inappropriate response. And I think what we're seeing here, one is actually, ironically, social media rewards this behavior because people have now heard of this Carnegie Mellon professor. Before yesterday, they hadn't, or very few people had. This person was, um, if not quite anonymous, not well known outside of her profession or field, and was just another person. But now it's that Carnegie Mellon professor. Like, so in a very strange way, doing something terrible can make you very famous. And some small minority will uh, love you and adore you and like and retweet and, and you know, yes, ironically scream, yes, queen, uh, in, in these, you know, over this, <laughs> while the rest of us are like, no, this is terrible. Why would you do that? Um, in some ways, we're, we're, you know, this the whole controversy works to this person's favor. I did see Carnegie Mellon issued a statement saying we do not agree with this sentiment. I, I'm glad Carnegie Mellon is not, at least as of this point, I don't know if I like the idea of you know there being professional consequences for tweeting something really dumb. You know, in a way that is in some ways a reflection of cancel culture. And I know there are a bunch of conservatives out there who feel like, well, if our guys are going to get subjected to cancel culture, their guys should get subjected to cancel culture. She should be fired. She should be you know uh, dismissed from the university. Turnabout is fair play. Well, now we're, by that point, we're then saying, okay, if you tweet something sufficiently controversial then you should be, you know, they should get rid of you. I just prefer this person realize, wow, that was a really terrible thing to say. I wish I hadn't said it. She'll never do that. I, I don't count on that. But I do kind of wonder if this entire process of saying something horrible after someone dies, almost in a, what I suspect is deliberate trolling, in an effort that is deliberately meant to outrage other people uh, in order to kind of get fame, get notoriety, get attention or something like that, um, is there a way where, for us to push back against this that does not actually help the person get what they want in the form of greater fame and name recognition and things like that? Wow. Yeah. Uh, very well said. Uh, you mentioned the statement from Carnegie Mellon. Twitter actually took the tweet down. Uh, and then there were other people who uh, you know, were very critical in response, including Jeff Bezos. Uh, and then there was also a comment from a uh, former 
conservative member of the British Parliament who unfortunately has the name Louise Mensch, who says, who are you again? Oh, yeah, absolutely nobody trying to grift off a beloved woman that people care about. So, um, And Jim, you're right about drawing the line, because we've talked about al-Zahiri, we, Soleimani and the stain at the airport and so forth. I will point out that I asked Jim after we came back from Christmas break last year, hey, you know, Harry Reid died while we were gone. Do you want to talk about it? And he said, no. If we don't have anything good to say, we shouldn't do it. And so that's the standard that we try to, to go by here. And apparently uh, other people have very different ideas about what's appropriate. I think we'll stick with our standard. I was going to say, uh, Greg, are you, are you telling me Luis Mensch said something wise and smart and good? <laughs> Is that the same, Luis? Trying to be in a good mood going into the weekend. And now... Is that the same one? Is it? Because Luis Mensch used to be a member of Parliament. Oh, my gosh. I just assumed she that, had the unfortunate coincidence of having the same name. Oh, my gosh. She said something nope, sane. Nope, that's Louisa. So, wow. Good job, Luis, man. Good job. <laughs> no sarcasm. No enthusiasm, but no sarcasm either. <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, my gosh. I just knew she was an online crackpot. But even they can, can have really smart statements once in a while. Not many, but some. Jim, <laughs> on that note... Wow, what a weird way to head into the weekend. Have a good one, and I'll see you on Monday. And you're sending it into NFL kickoff weekend. Thanks, Greg. You know, <laughs> when the Jets lose, and believe me, they're going to lose, it's all your fault. I'm just letting you know. Yeah, by the time the Bears and the Jets hook up in late November, I'm not sure it's going to be for a whole lot other than our usual draft positioning. But uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised. See you on Monday. <laughs> See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Uh, also, thank you for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Get Jim's new novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great weekend, and join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey, guys, we know it's hard to keep up with all the news these days, but don't worry, because we're here to talk and laugh about it all. Biden is dividing the country by calling Republicans the biggest threat to our nation. Big tech is being exposed for working with the government and voting is more important than ever with elections approaching. Hey, it's the Chicks here from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.